Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, welcome to Movember Radio. I'm Washington Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a weekly podcast focusing on men's health and the issues men face today. There's more than 5 million people in the Movember community worldwide. Each week, we speak with someone from that community who's passionate about changing the face of men's health. If you never want to miss an episode, real easy, just subscribe. You can find us in the podcast app of your choice or on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Also at MovemberRadio.com. We'd ask this week you take a quick moment to rate the show and comment on it in iTunes. Really helps us out. Really helps us out. My guest this week is Ross Sabo. You can find him on Twitter, R-O-S-S-E-S-Z or Z-A-B-O, R-O-S-S-E-S-Z-A-B-O. Ross is a mental health advocate and professional speaker. He's also the author of the book, Behind Happy Faces, Taking Charge of Your Mental Health. Ross lives in Los Angeles. He grew up in Pennsylvania in the United States. Ross was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was 16. Then when he was 17, the diagnosis changed to bipolar disorder with anger control problems and psychotic features. Drawing on his experience and wanting to spread the word to others and normalize the conversation, Ross quickly started speaking quite openly about what was going on in his life, even back when he was in high school. Since then, Ross has spoken to over 1 million people about what he went through. Ross has worked for the Clinton administration. He was hired by them to work with a national mental health awareness campaign. He did that for eight years. Now, Ross's story does have a happy ending, but I will tell you right now, we do get a little dark on this one. And as always, if you hear anything that you relate to, it's important that you have a conversation with your doctor. So enjoy this episode with Ross Sabo. How do you do, Ross? Thanks for joining us on Movember Radio today. Where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Thanks for having me. What part of Los Angeles? It's a very big town. Yeah, I know. Every time there's a wildfire like 100 miles from Los Angeles, my parents call me like, are you okay? And I'm like, it's not here. Uh, I live in Los Feliz. Ah, so you're in the uh, long beard, forearm tattoo, excellent coffee district. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sporting my hipster garb today, but uh, it's funny, when, when Movember happens, you can't tell if somebody's actually participating or just being a Los Feliz hipster. I don't know. <laughs> what do you like about living in Los Angeles? I like, in the area I live, well, I work from home, so I don't have to deal with traffic. 
which is a huge bonus. I like being able to go outside every day. <laughs> um, I like to hike. I like the area where I live, and there's just like endless restaurants and bars. And it's a good city if you don't have to deal with the things that people complain about the most. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> you, are, you are absolutely correct. We're talking. So, we're talking today because of you. You have quite a, a remarkable story, and you you very graciously offered that we can talk about your story. So, if you don't mind, if we could kind of kick off with when you have to explain to somebody that perhaps you've just met or you feel comfortable enough to, to, to explain to, when you have to explain to them about what goes on in your brain versus someone with a healthy brain, how how do you describe it? Well, I think I start by giving kind of the lowlights, the the hardest parts uh, that I went through, and then stressing the work I went and and the work I'd done to have a balanced life and to have a brain that does, you know, function much like everyone else's uh, now. Um, I just think that, you know, with the diagnoses I went through, it was much harder. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 16. And then when I was 17, the, the diagnosis changed to bipolar disorder with anger control problems and psychotic features. Uh, the symptoms were really just kind of typical, but also awful. You know, I had these extreme manic highs where I wouldn't sleep for four days in a row and felt like I was invincible. And then I'd have this extreme anger and then I'd have this massive depression and couldn't get out of bed. And um, the anger got worse at age 17. The psychotic features got worse where I was hallucinating and hearing voices and having things chase me. But at the time, I was, you know, functional. I was present in my class. I was playing sports. I was in every student activity imaginable. On the surface, you wouldn't know how bad it was. And uh, in my senior year of high school, I attempted to take my own life. And that's when people really were like, oh, wh- what, what, where did this come from? Um, and that first attempt to take my own life was was really just the start of things. I think sometimes people think like, oh, you get a diagnosis, something happens to you, and then, you know, it gets better. But I was in so much denial and just didn't want to accept that I had a problem. So then I just turned heavily to alcohol and drank for really the next – I started drinking when I was 13, but I started drinking heavily from like 16 to 22. And I was in and out of colleges and – hospitalized again. And, and I think my worst moment really came around 22 when I drank so much that I passed out for about 22 hours. And this wasn't uncommon for me at the time. I used to pass out for like 16, 18 hours at a time. But when I woke up that night, I'd been driving drunk for years. I'd been having unprotected sex for years. I had been really dysfunctional. That's when I woke up and was like, oh, this, you you are messed up. Like you do have a problem. You do need to start working on this. Had people been kind of gently trying to tell you, "Hey, Ross, something might not be right before then," and were you able to listen? I think that there were a couple of people who asked me to seek help, and I did. I, I think it's a challenge when somebody is actively in therapy, in treatment, on medication, and still being and still not taking care of themselves at all. Because what do you tell that person? Well, you should seek help. Well, I was seeking help. You know, you should talk about it. Well, I was kind of talking about it. I just wasn't t- accepting it. And I wasn't talking about what the real problem was, which was that I felt weak. I felt stupid. I, I was embarrassed. I felt like it should just go away. Uh, you know, a lot of times therapy and treatment are so focused on the symptoms 
that no one ever asks how you feel about it. And so I actually needed to get to a better place to accept it. And then, you know, nowadays there are uh, far more treatments than ever before, but you do have to accept it. And as a guy, that's not easy, man. It's not easy to, when people, like, people would be like, well, talk about how you feel. Well, no one ever used emotional words in my life. So it was like asking someone who'd never seen ice cream before to tell you what, what their favorite flavor is. Like, oh, do you like chocolate? I don't even know what ice cream is. How am I going to eat this ice cream? So it, it's a process. It's, it's a long process to really find balance and start working on yourself. It certainly must have been quite isolating going through high school, seeing that. I mean, did you, did you see, I don't want to assume, did you see that you were markedly different from the other people you were going through high school with? I, I went to a high school where people drank a lot. Well, I think what was tough was our forms of expression were really similar. So we'd all drink to the point of passing out. We'd all drive drunk. We'd all binge drink. We'd all, you know, do stupid things. But I think the difference was the reasons. Their reasoning was to just get messed up. My reasoning was that I had no control over my thoughts. And the only way to get that control was to shut my brain down. And the only way to shut my brain down was to drink until the point of passing out. So it's tough when you're that young or when you surround yourself with people who are also drinking to the point of passing out. Like in my current life, if I drank to the point of passing out or blacking out, no one would be like, that's so cool, man. <laughs> like You totally passed out for a day. No one could wake you up. No one would do that now. But when your environment supports it, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to make that change. So when you mentioned it was around the age of 22, when you, I mean, in, in recovery, they call it hit rock bottom. When you, much, yeah. when you realized you were there because you put yourself there, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which is how they, just, how they define it. Um, did you have a, a realization of the kind of life changes you were going to have to make and perhaps the relationships you might have to perhaps cut off? Yeah, I think, I think you have a little bit of a realization, but the depths of it aren't obviously the first thing you, you see. I, I think the biggest thing for me was... The, the the bipolar disorder and anger and psychosis and alcohol were obviously really bad, but I hated myself. And I hated myself more than I think anyone can imagine. And so when you hate yourself, it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is. You have to learn to actually like yourself before you can possibly begin the journey you're talking about. And so I had to learn to like myself first, and then I had to evaluate, like, okay, uh, clearly I have to find a way out of this. I have to stop, um, you know, I have to go sober for a while here and figure out what's happening in my life. I have to embrace treatment. I have to change my lifestyle. I have to do a lot to be able to, to get through this. Trying to process, I mean, in my experience, at least trying to process what's going on with your brain with a brain that doesn't work properly is a little like trying to bite your own teeth. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. But that's why you need that perspective. And, and, and one of the biggest things I did was put myself in a system that I could control. So I went to bed at the same time every day. I went to sleep at the same time every night. I started eating healthier. I started exercising. And when you can't understand exactly what your brain is doing, what you can do is look at how you're coping with it. So the way I was coping with it before this rock bottom moment was to to just drink to the point of passing out. I had to change that to 
talking about it, writing about it, exercising. I had to, you know, in some ways rewire my brain to, to stop from stop following the same pattern. And once you change your environment and your coping mechanisms and you put in that system, then you, you, you can stop just biting your own teeth. You can actually see like, oh, I keep doing this or I keep trying this. How do I, how do I break that? When you first were faced with the idea of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to talk about this, what was your perception of what people might say back to you versus what actually happened? What's, what's funny about that is I didn't care. Like, but that point, I didn't care what people were going to think. I needed to in, in order to live. And I found that, you know, uh, most people were really open and accepting. I think in high school, I got tripped up because I wanted everyone to understand. And that's just not realistic. The reality is you only need a couple of people to understand your therapist, the, 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 the treatment you're getting. And then, you know, you know, hopefully like, you know, your girlfriend or your partner or whoever it is and a couple of friends. But I think sometimes people get tripped up because they think like, well, everyone should know this and they tell everyone. And one, not everyone's going to be close enough with you to care. And two, not everyone's going to know what to do. So I thrived in just finding a couple of people who would listen. And then in the beginning, like if I look back from the difference between then and now, I used to just let everything out and I just talk and talk and talk and talk. And there are certain people that want to be there for that. And there are other people who, you know, want to have a give and take or want to be a part of it. And so everybody's different in that regard too. I was never talking to people to get advice. I was talking to them to release everything from my mind and then I'd figure it out, which isn't always fair in a friendship either. That's, that's a very interesting point because the other person may not be equipped exactly as you described to, to know what to do about it and it might even stress the friendship. Yeah, it's like this. If, if we were at a party and you broke your leg, I would get you to the hospital. I wouldn't look at your broken leg and be like, oh, I've seen a cast before and walk down to a store and get everything for a cast and buy you some crutches and come back and be like, hey, man, I can fix your broken leg. There are things with our emotions where we blur those lines. Like you, may have a, you might have an emotional problem. I'll stay up all night texting you and being like, hey, let me help you. There are things as friends that you can handle, and there are things as friends that professionals can handle. And sometimes we have to know those lines or we get into really unhealthy friendships where now we're just trying to manage someone's emotions, which isn't the role of a friend. You're not a therapist. You're not a psychologist. And, that, and that's really hard to understand in a culture where we just don't talk about this at all. We don't educate people about it. We don't teach them how to be uh, a friend who isn't a therapist. And so I think those, all of those things get muddy. If people are listening right now and they're resonating with crossing that boundary between friend and fixer, what would you say to someone who's listening who's, you know, hearing you describe what it's like, what their relationship with their friend who's going through trouble is? What would you say to that person? I would say that you should treat them as if it was a physical health problem. Ask them how they feel. Ask them what they need. Ask them what you can do for them. Ask them how you can support them. Making assumptions or judgments or just doing it on your own doesn't work for a physical health problem. It's not going to work for a mental health problem. Beyond that, uh, you know, understand that these things uh, do have a lot of difficulty and they, they are things that, that can be really challenging. But um, as a friend, there's only so much you can do. You can't fix your, your friend. You can't. Uh, make them get the help they need. You can't make them accept it. You can remind them and support them and love them. 
But you also need to take care of yourself in that situation. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to that have completely lost their mental health because their friend's mental health is gone. And you have to manage your mental health in the process or you end up in the same boat as this other person. So treat it like a physical health problem. Support them, love them. Most importantly, ask them what they need because you can't just assume that and take care of yourself. Those are always the the three biggest things. I, I certainly know that when I was going through my worst times, mates, they would just say, well, mate, you can always talk to me. I can always talk you through it. And I, I just kind of got tired of saying... Honestly, the part of my brain that would have listened to you was broken. I, I would have thought wow. you were in on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, that was, yeah. that, that, was, that was, so I'm really resonating with what you're saying to me actually right now. You've, you've been advocating and you've been talking about this for quite a while. Um, apparently, you've, and this, I don't know if this is true or not, I read it on the internet, so I'm not going to ask you personally. <laughs> you have spoken to over a million people about this. I have, yeah. Wow. I've spoken over a million. That's, yeah. When did well, that kind of work start and why? Well, I started speaking in high school. When, when I was hospitalized for attempting to take my own life in high school, when I went back to school, everything changed. And I lost some really close friends. And I had just all these rumors about me, which is typical. I grew up in a really small town in Pennsylvania, uh, really rural. And... Uh, a teacher I had had this idea, oh, why don't I bring in a, te- uh, a psychologist to talk to students about people he treats so that maybe they'll be more understanding. And uh, so the psychologist comes in and as he's talking about the patients he's treating, he chooses the like most stereotypical examples of extreme mental illness. So like a person who thought they were Winnie the Pooh and someone who was at an airport waiting for a plane to Venus. And so as he's doing this, every single student in the classroom is laughing. And at that point, I had been laughed at enough. And so I got really angry and I I took my teacher. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Turned to the hallway and I was like, this isn't funny. This isn't something people should laugh about. And he looked down at me in a really like, you know, rural Pennsylvania way. And he was like, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, let me speak. Let me tell people what it's like to go through this. If they're not going to listen to him, then maybe they'll listen to me. And so I stood up in that same classroom two weeks later and I spoke for the first time. And then after that, uh, he kept bringing me back to speak to classrooms. And as I was going through like 
all kinds of stuff. When I finally stabilized at like 23, yeah, age 23, I had this idea where I was like, well, why were there full school assemblies about everything else when I was in high school, but not this? No one was talking about mental health. And so I researched and nobody was doing it. And then I started my own nonprofit organization to just create large-scale presentations about mental health. And I ran that for a year, and then I was hired by the National Mental Health Awareness Campaign, which was started at the White House by the Clinton administration uh, as their director. And, and in my time there, uh, I created the first youth mental health speakers around the country, and now I've trained over 50 speakers who have spoken to millions of people. So I saw this gap in what was happening in education. and was like, okay, well, let's, let's create this large-scale assembly about mental health and now it's that's that side has really really taken off so it was a it was a process it was the personal experience and then it was looking around and being like why doesn't this exist and then it was getting all the help and all the people behind it to to make it happen that's that's a, a remarkable vocation that you've you've created out of what was enormous turmoil man thanks yeah that, that must feel pretty good it does. Yeah. I, it's, I think that's something I'll always be really proud of is that in our lives, you hope to be able to create something that doesn't exist and, and see it thrive. And, uh, you know, I keep in touch with all the speakers that I've been able to train and work with and they're all doing great. And I think the most important thing that happened for me was I had a team of people around me that supported me, that worked with me and that, identified the best messaging and the best ways to keep mental health advocates safe. Because if you're not keeping them safe, then it's not going to work. You know, if we're going to advocate mental health, we have to be taking care of our mental health. We have to live that message. And so I was fortunate to work with some of the top psychiatrists and psychologists in the country and some other advocates to really make it happen. I think as, as well, the thing that you've got to be acknowledged for is that out of such darkness, I mean, You've talked about it, uh, so I'll mention it. You, you were from someone who's attempted to take their own life, lived very dysfunctionally, and was perhaps on a path that many people could predict how it ended. You've completely changed course and created an incredible life out of such, you know, such a bad place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there's those moments in that growth where when the good things start happening, you're overwhelmed emotionally because you're like, well, and now, now isn't this something supposed to ruin this? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. Everything's going well. How long is this going to last? Like, am I going to get hit by a car? I don't understand. And so it does, it takes a long time to get to that point where you don't, you wake up and don't have to worry about everything that you've worried about your whole life. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work. And, and I always say what sucks the most about any mental health disorder is that the, the three ingredients you need to balance your life are self-awareness, discipline, and responsibility. And mental health disorders by nature strip you of those three things consistently. So it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, again, go back to your analogy of not biting your own teeth when the three things you need to get through it are stripped from you just by having the problem. It's, it's really, it's really, it's really difficult. There's, there's going to be people listening who probably maybe before this conversation, certainly if they never met anyone or have anybody in their life that's dealing with this, that resonates more with that person that came to speak to your class, talk about the guy that thought he was Winnie the Pooh or was waiting for a plane to Venus. 
What's one thing that you wish people would know about folks who do live with a mental disorder? I think the biggest thing is that no one is proud of that. Like the, the moments where I couldn't control the hallucinations or couldn't control my moods or was having outbursts or was wanting to kill myself. I didn't want to do that. And we act a lot of times like these people who end up in these wor- these the most terrible situations like, well, you know, screw them. It's their fault. Like, well, <laughs> nobody wants to be in that place. But the longer you're in that place, the harder it becomes to get out of it. I just walked with my fiance to the post office, and on the way back, there's a there's a homeless man who who sleeps in some of the worst situations. Like it's it's pretty warm today, and he's just passed out in the middle of the sidewalk. And if you were to look at the patterns in his brain and and how long he had been either an addict or homeless or whatever he's gone through, it gets to the place where it's just really hard to change that. But nobody wants to get there. It's just a a process of either biology or environment or trauma that got you there. And so instead of judging people or or looking at people, think about, you know, what patterns got them there? What what happened in their life to get them there? It's the brain is a really fascinating thing that we've learned more about in the last five years than all the years before it. Um, and we keep learning more. And, and what we are learning is that these neural connections really matter. And the more you repeat them, whether it is just drinking because you're upset or um, having anger or whatever it is, you, the, the, it gets to a place of, of severity. You just mentioned something that made me kind of leap a bit with joy. You said the F word. You said fiancé. <laughs> <laughs> There's... Yeah. And this may be surprised. Look, you're, you're living a full life. You're you're giving back to your community. You're 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 you know supporting yourself. You're putting a roof over your head. You're you're doing all this great work, and it sounds like you're in a relationship that's going really well. At what point in the dating process? Because people might be interested about this. At what point in the dating process uh-huh. do you disclose? Oh, hey, by the way, um, this also goes on with me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's tough for me because if you Google me, <laughs> I mean, all that comes up is uh, that. You know what I mean? Like, I think when I was single and going on dates and, and that stuff, um, you know, if people ask me what I did, like, I'm a mental health advocate. Like, you know what I mean? I can't get away with it. But But the advice I give other people is to bring out any experience with your mental health when you're comfortable. You don't need to lead with it. You don't need to wear it on your sleeve. You don't need to talk about it before appetizers on the first date. Like, oh, do you want, do you want wings? I have bipolar disorder. Like, you know, um, because I think what is most important is that you trust yourself enough to know when to disclose it. And, um, you know, in, in our culture right now, everybody wants to, like, throw everything out there or there's social media and everything else. But this is important enough to show that you're responsible enough with it, that you can disclose it at a time where you, you feel like it's the right time where you feel it's comfortable. You're no matter who you are, your, your mental health disorder or whatever your experiences are, they don't define you. They don't have to define you. Um, bipolar disorder doesn't define me. My name's Ross. I have bipolar disorder. I'm not bipolar. So let someone get to know who you are 
out, outside of that first. Then if you are in a place where it is so dominating your life, because we've all been there, where your moods are up and down or, you know, whatever you're going through, you just lost someone or, you know, whatever the experience is, it's okay to maybe be a little bit more upfront with what you're going through right now. Um, you know, I don't know if that shows up on Tinder. I don't know if that's part of the profile. But I think that, uh, I think the important piece is that you're, you're comfortable with sharing it. You don't have to lead with it. Because you wouldn't share, like, you know, let's say you would, let's say, you know, you had some low level of cancer and you were getting treatment for it. You wouldn't go on a date and be like, yeah, so I have cancer. Do you want to, like, go back to my place now? Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's personal for everybody. And, and, it's something that does require trust. So, for example, to use an analogy, if somebody you're going on a date and things are getting a bit serious and someone's diabetic, you're going to say, look, if you ever see me kind of in a corner, go and grab some jelly babies and shove them in my face because, you know, <laughs> I'm having a diabetic coma. How do you, obviously, when you're to the point of the relationship where you're asking someone to marry you, right? how do you help prepare this person, this, this person in your life, be it a you know, man or woman, um, to deal with you mm-hmm. on the days when, the mil- when you know, your, your brain's kind of got the better of you? Well, I think that the most important element in that is um, that you take some level of responsibility in being honest with it. So I can come home and have different moods and say, okay, look, I'm just having a, a rough day. I need some time or I need this from you, where you're communicating what you need. For me, it's not acceptable to just come home and flip out and be like, well, I have bipolar disorder, so deal with it. That's your problem. You chose me. Like, you can't do that. You, you wouldn't do it with a physical health problem. You know, you wouldn't be like, well, I have a heart problem, but I'm just going to drink alcohol and eat cheeseburgers and french fries every day and not exercise and die. You'd have to communicate and take care of your physical health. You have to do the same thing with your mental health. And I think that if you're trying to be as honest and as responsible as you can, it gives your partner a chance to be aware of what they can do and what they can't do. Um, The biggest problems happen in relationships where that communication isn't happening. And now someone's just going to react to your moods, either in a good way or a bad way, or they're going to hide because they don't know exactly what you need. But as guys, that's a really hard thing to, for us to figure out for some reason, like, um, it's one thing to be like, well, I, I really like this when we're hooking up, you know, and we, we, we get that right. But when we're communicating emotionally, it's a different thing. And so it's a challenge for, for guys, you know, I find that, um, again, if you come from this history of not knowing necessarily how to talk about emotions, asking for what you need emotionally is, is really difficult. So be patient. If you are going to try and make that step, be patient because it might take you some time to, to be able to verbalize it or even to actually know what it is. And it is obviously one of uh, women's biggest frustration with us and, and partners in general. You know, just why can't you just tell me what you want? Like, oh, you know. <laughs> so it's not even just like figuring out what you have to tell your partner. It's, it's a whole other process of getting comfortable enough or even recognizing what it is. Because sometimes we just don't know. Mate, this has been a, a magnificent conversation. I, I kind of wish we could talk more. I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show one day. We do. Um, cool. Oh, that'd be, that'd be great. There are yeah, people thanks. that are probably listening that might have resonated a bit with what you've said, either about the stuff that you talked about, which happened to you personally uh, towards the end of high school, or people who are listening and they 
you know, can resonate with perhaps what your fiance is going through. What would you say, what would you say to people that have maybe been, been kind of peaked a little by what you've said today? I guess no matter what you're going through, just don't ever give up. Don't ever give up on trying to, to change it or trying to get better. Sometimes these things seem like they're never going to end, whether it's alcohol or depression or, or drugs or mania or anger. But if you really do want to make that change, you really do want to make that difference. Keep trying new things. Uh, keep trying to to seek out the people who support you and love you because it, it really can turn around. It really can. Um, you can start to see progress, but don't give up because you're not alone. There are a lot of people going through this. There are a lot of people who have gone through it before you. And, and you know, it sounds cliche, but you, you really do have to keep trying to find something that works for you. Mate, thank you so much for your time. We do like to wrap up these conversations with the same questions for everybody. So I'll kick off with the first one. When it comes to Movember, what kind of mustache do you grow? I grow the traditional just, just, just above the lip. Um, I, haven't grown, I haven't gone with the handlebar. I haven't gone with anything fancy. Um, so I, I'm a traditional mustache guy. What kind of conversations come from the mustache? A lot of weird things, you know, like uh, especially because I travel a lot. And so, you know, people will be like, oh, I like your mustache or like, you know, why do you have that mustache? <laughs> and then I'll tell them like, well, I think we need to have conversations about men's mental health. And then then you hear, you know, all kinds of stories. I try to never say that answer on a plane <laughs> because then I, cause I have to sit next to that person for the next out five hours. But let but me tell I, you, it, I, sounds, it sounds like the mustache is doing its job, man. It's starting a conversation. No, it definitely is. And I get a lot of a lot of really I get a lot of people opening up about their mental health for the first time. That's on not only a, a an honor but also, you know, something that's it's quite special if people feel that they can talk to you for the first time about that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the mustache does it. <laughs> okay, the second one. If you could pick up a phone right now and have a conversation with your teenage self, what advice would you give young Ross? I guess it depends on the day. I think that I think I would have told a younger version of myself that talking about your feelings takes more strength than it does to hide it. That you're a stronger person if you get these things out. You're a stronger person if you actually address what you're going through. That you don't need to be afraid of this. Um, you know, the hiding of it was really dangerous, and I really thought it was a sign of weakness. But what I've learned is. It, it requires so much more strength to tackle something and address it than it does to hide it. And the final question, what do you appreciate most about your friends? I think that the biggest thing I appreciate about my friends is that they, they do make me feel like just like a regular person. You know, when we hang out, there's no, oh, you have bipolar disorder or any of that stuff. We don't focus on what's happened to us as much as what we've done together and and really just laughing and, and bringing out the best in each other. And I think that kind of understanding is really, really, uh, you know, the only thing you can hope for in friendship. Ross, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your Thanks, time bro. on Movember Radio, mate. Thank you. That was Ross Sabo. You can find him on Twitter, R-O-S-S-E-S. -S -S -E 
Z-A-B-O or Z-A-B-O, depending on what side of the Atlantic you live on. Let them know that you heard him here on Movember Radio. I'm grateful that I could share this conversation with you, though it never should replace a conversation with your own doctor. You can find us on Facebook by searching Movember. For other episodes, check out MovemberRadio.com or find us in the podcasting app of your choice. This episode of Movember Radio was produced by myself, Osha Ginsberg, also with Molly Hindman and Lavanya Nagendran. Music was by Tohider and audio production on this episode was by Daryl Misson. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.